This is written, you know, pretty much a hundred years ago. For, uh, step number one is to take God and prayer out of the education system. Step number two, reduce parental authority over the children. Step number three, destroy the Judeo-Christian family structure or the traditional Christian family structure. Step four, if sex is free, then make abortion legal and make it easy. Step five, make divorce easy and legal. Free people from the concept of marriage for life. Step number six, make homosexuality an alternative lifestyle. Number seven, debase art, make it run mad. Number eight, use media to promote and change the mindsets. N number nine, create an interfaith movement. And that's what we're seeing here with all the different denominations. They're, eventually, it's like they're going to try to merge them and say, oh, well, you're all worshiping the, the Christ consciousness anyway, so it's all good. Step number 10, get governments to make all of these laws and get the church to endorse these changes. That's a hundred years ago. Many millennia ago, at the peak of Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights, a group of divine beings known as the Watchers, or Sons of God, descended in an act of rebellion against their king, Yahweh. By teaching them the secret knowledge of the cosmos, they sought to wrestle dominion of the earth away from humanity. They bore children with them, and their offspring were both human and divine. These giants are the demigods of old, and the events that transpired would forever alter the course of human history. At Camp Hermon, we discuss the oddities of the ancient world and their lingering impact on our world today. Welcome. Hey campers, welcome to another episode of Camp Hermon. My name is Chris Price. I'm Tori Peterson. I'm Dr. Judd Burton. And tonight, guys, we have got a special guest. His name is Mike Stibbs. Hey, Mike. How's it going, guys? Thank you for guys and lady. Thank you for having me on the show tonight again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to talk your guys' ears off tonight, just so you know. And just all the listeners out there, I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to blow your mind with some crazy manifestation stuff that's from like 200 years ago. We're just going to blow your mind. Yeah. And before, Mike, before you blow our minds, I would like to anna officially announce, um, which you already know this, so I'm not announcing it to you, right? <laughs> but I want to announce that. So Mike Stibbs is officially joining the, the Camp Herman team. Uh, he's going to come on from time to time as a guest. He's going to still run his channel, Project Revelation, which is amazing. If you guys haven't checked it out, go to YouTube, Project Revelation. He's got a ton of amazing content. But Mike is going to be joining us uh, more behind the scenes as a, a creative director. We've got um, this uh, Bell Witch uh, documentary coming out, which we're going to be discussing the Bell Witch tonight. Um, but yeah, so Mike's Mike's coming on board. We're super stoked. Your your content and stuff is amazing. You're a fantastic director. So we're we're super super happy to have you uh, joining the team, bro. Yeah, man, it's 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 uh, I'm super happy too. I'm, you know, we are we will be unveiling um, another project very, very soon. That is going to be the biggest thing we've ever that I've ever done 
in my life. Uh, so yeah, dude, like all I can say is that God is all over this type of stuff right now. Um, I, I just feel it. I feel like God's moving and, uh, I'm going with them. So I know you guys are too. So let's, let's have some fun. Let's do it. So Mike, I'm actually going to let you do a takeover tonight, man. Um, hit us, hit us with the bell, Witch, bro. Yes. So for now, it just depends on how you're listening to this. Um, all you campers out there, but we have successfully and very quietly made a small documentary film about the bell witch. And this is one of the most crazy supernatural hauntings, at least in America, that's been documented and corroborated by hundreds of people. And at the time, it would have been a future president, but even Andrew Jackson went to go and visit this property and had manifestations and was thoroughly creeped out. So where I want to start this, Chris, well, I'll start this with you because this is kind of how we met. Like I get a message on Facebook from you, Chris, um, and you're like, hey, can you like give me a call? Like I never heard of you before. I didn't know who you were. And <laughs> And I'm like, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of at the time, I'm a little bit in between projects. And for whatever reason, I'm like, dude, I'm just going to call this dude. And like, you just cut right to the chase. And you're like, I want to collab with you on this project. So my first question is, how did you even come to the idea that you wanted to do something on the Bell Witch? Yeah. So I think Tori and I have been talking about to some different directions that we wanted to to go in. And I believe it, if I'm not mistaken, I may have been on the road heading back to Tennessee from Merkel um, visiting Dr. Judd. And in that visit, Dr. Judd was like, I'm, I'm on board. Let's, let's do it. Um, as far as joining us in these different projects that we're doing. So, I mean, I've seen your channel, your stuff, your stuff is awesome. And so I don't know, man, I just felt like the Lord is like, hit up Mike and just ask him if he wants to be involved. So I was like, all right. So I, I shot you a message and then we just kind of started chatting from there. But I knew Tennessee has a lot of kind of strange history. And so when I was thinking about some different topics that we could discuss, I remembered the Bell Witch. And I was like, that's gotta be, that can't be too far away. And I did a search and I was like, yo, it's, it's right out. It's in Adams, Tennessee, right outside of Nashville. And I live in the Nashville area. And so I hit up Tori and I was like, yo, uh, Tori was already going to be in town for a meetup that we had ha already had planned. And I was like, Hey, what if we went to Adams that weekend that you were here and we went and checked it out and Tori, you were, you were on board, right? Yes. She's down for a crazy adventure. So you guys, so you guys went on to the Bell Witch property. How did, how did that go down? Like not how, not how you ended up going there, but I'll guess I'll ask you, Tori is like, what did you guys, what did you see there? And maybe if you want to share just a little bit of the background of the Bell Witch story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we weren't really sure what to expect. It's, um, it's located in this very sleepy looking little town. Um, so we drive through, you know, a bunch of abandoned buildings and down this country road. And 
the land is on our right. And we roll in. And the first thing we did actually after we parked is we like had a time of prayer just because we weren't really sure what we're walking into. And we believe that like principalities are real and we believe, you know, that this stuff isn't a joke, but also that it doesn't have power over us. So, so we prayed just to like protect ourselves as we went in. Um, so they recreated the original houses away from, so the houses that we walked through weren't the originals. They, they just made replicas that were Chris, I don't know how far were they, like a hundred yards from the original site or something like that. Yeah. Not too far on the same property. On the same property. Yeah. It just wasn't the exact house. Um, it definitely felt, I mean, it felt a little eerie. I don't know how much of that was in my head or how much of that we were actually perceiving. Um, yeah. You know, there were a lot of people there. It was a little bit touristy, but but it was interesting going through the house and seeing, you know, artifacts and seeing there are just, I mean, hundreds of newspaper clippings that they have framed and stuff too. So like you said, Mike, it's been very well corroborated. Um, yeah. I mean, Andrew Jackson and I, I believe other notable people around that time. Um, basically it wasn't just like one family making up stories, like hundreds and hundreds of people witness this stuff. So yeah, I mean, it was weird being there and, um, a family still owns the property and I don't believe it's, it's a bell family member, but like some family who's owned it for several generations still lives there. Um, and apparently it still has weird things happening on their house and their house in the, the cave and the surrounding little buildings. So yeah, that was kind of interesting to hear. Did they, did they mention while you were on the property, did they mention like the nature of the more recent, things that were happening. Yes, actually, I think I have a voice recording that I should probably send you, but our little tour guide, her grandma lives on the site. Um, and she was telling me the stuff that's happened with her grandma, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and having things moved around in her kitchen and hearing things, you know, like footsteps and basically like things flying around in the house that weren't being touched and things like that. So, um, and I, I think that they possibly still heard a voice in the cave. I need to listen back to that voice memo. Um, but part of the original story is the speaking and then hearing a voice like speak back in the cave. Um, and it, one of the tour guides said that that still happened. And another girl who I think was her older sister kind of shook her head, you know. But anyway, so it sounded pretty benign. But the fact that it's happening at all is kind of, you know, <laughs> it's kind of ominous. Yeah, abs- Absolutely. Go, Chris. Yeah, from what I remember, so the family that owns it, like Tori said, it's been in the fam. The property's been in the family for generations. They turned it into essentially a way for them to make money. They do you get you pay. They do guided tours of the the cabin, which is an exact replica of the original, and then they take you down to the cave where there's a recorded incident that happened um, with some of the Bell kids in the cave. And I remember, so one of our tour guides is the granddaughter um, and the, her grandmother who owns the property lives in a house on the, on the original property, not far from the cave. And I remember her saying that the grandma hears like audible voices in the house. And I can't remember if she also hears things like on the phone too, um, but she does hear she she essentially gets visited um what sounded like fairly regularly um by some sort of spirit or apparition 
on the property there to this day. This will be directed towards uh, Dr. Judd here, but um, like when I look at the story of the Bell Witch and how it started, it kind of just, you know, because Skinwalker Ranch is is totally like just trending in the paranormal, you know, slash fringe world right now. But the story of the Skinwalker Ranch starts off with a weird dog. And then from that time, the owners were having a lot of you know paranormal activity up until this day, um, but the Bell Witch story starts off that way, doesn't it? Yeah, and a lot of the it is the similarities are really kind of striking. Um, that I, I think sort of the the missing variable that doesn't get a lot of traction is the the Native American history that's associated with the region and. It's interesting that you bring up Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, if memory serves, in that case, that that was and is Ute land, uh, and the Navajo saw them as as traders of the sort uh, during a, that phase of the Indian Wars, and uh, they they uh, cursed the land, which supposedly is is part and parcel why so many strange phenomena occur uh, on Skinwalker Ranch. And so the, the native backdrop is, is an interesting one. It's not really one that you can, you can get around, particularly given the fact that you're, you're, you're at kind of a crossroads in that part of Tennessee. It's where the, the eastern woodland tribes, uh, sort of cultural region would have overlapped kind of with the mound builders so that you do get mounts on this sort of periphery. Uh, and on you add to that this this other layer of supernatural paranormal background, add to that the high strangeness that's been associated with the mammoth cave system uh, in the vicinity is also of, uh, should should also cause an eyebrow or two to raise so what you're looking at in the case of the Bill Witch is a, a, a very strange confluence of events, people, um, and undoubtedly uh, not necessarily sacred geography, perhaps infernal geography might be uh, a better characterization, uh, but something has, has transpired beyond the veil of, of what we're able to perceive uh, that, that was a catalyst for the events that have taken place, certainly over the last 200 years. And, you know, who knows, you know, may, maybe there are more obscure and even older uh, references that are waiting to be discovered, waiting in somebody's attic. It wouldn't surprise me uh, in the least. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. 
No, I just want to I want to pick your brain on this for a little bit because we didn't talk about it in the documentary, but you said you referenced high strangeness happening in the mammoth cave system. Is is are you able to expand any on that at all? Yeah, the uh the mammoth cave system is uh is an immense system of caves that basically runs the length of uh, the Appalachians, uh, and even, even branches off into, into the o- Ozark, uh, region. So it's this immense, uh, cave system. But what, what is interesting about it from a, a kind of paranormal studies perspective, uh, are, are the, the bizarre events and people that have been recorded, uh, in, in conjunction uh, with the the states above the Mammoth Cave system, notably places like uh, Kentucky and Tennessee, and many people will be familiar with the uh, uh, the Mothman sightings that were so famous back at Point Pleasant, West Virginia, which would certainly uh, be be part of the purview, the geographical purview that we're talking about here. Uh, John Keel, uh, who was a journalist, wrote uh, a number of books, but notably The Mothman Prophecies, in which he detailed the uh, appearances and sightings of, of this, this supernatural harbinger of, of, of uh, uh, you know, uh, dangerous events of some kind that, that, were, that were at arm's length. And uh, Keel also interviewed people in that area who had encountered an individual by the name of Indrid Cold, uh, who claimed to be uh, uh, part of a cabal of, of essentially extraplanetary or extra-dimensional beings. And uh, Keel details the, the encounters with Indrid Cold. And again, you've got the strange confluence of events and people, UFO sightings. Another, uh, Another series of strange confluences you might say that come to mind is the subject matter of the docuseries Hellier, which Mike, you brought to my attention and how to describe those events, uh, a, a, a seemingly random email about, uh, uh, goblins living on an abandoned mine, the edge of this, this guy's property and a team going out to investigate it. Uh, and it, Turns out to be this, this, this chain of, of connections, basically with all kinds of other, um, what you might call Fortean or, or, or paranormal phenomena that they end up uh, encountering. All kinds of strange synchronicities involving everything from these Kentucky goblins that have been sighted actually before back in the fifties uh, by a number of people in Kentucky. UFO sightings, strange lights hovering in, o- over this region, Alice Crowley's Thelma magic uh, being used to decode part of the messages that they were uh, they were encountering, um, and even even a, a rather disturbing uh, ritual done in a cave to the god Pan. Uh, so there is this there is this long standing history, and certainly in in let's say the last 75 years 
we have better a better apparatus to record and and not necessarily quantify but at least qualify uh, that these events have been happening uh, within that time span a la the literature and books and articles things like that that have been produced and and docuseries For those that haven't heard of the Hellier series, um, I do recommend that if you're in, if you like fringe paranormal stuff, is to watch it. But watch it with your the full armor of God on because it really does get super super weird and and it sucks you in because they they tell this story so good. But what Judd was referring to was they were decoding these messages. Um, using like the Aleister Crowley method. And what they're doing is like, they're putting on, they have, they call something, they call it the God helmet, I think, but it's not the God helmet. The one that scientists are using with the magnetic stuff. This is like a, a more of like a spirit box that they're doing to try to talk to this, this entity. And basically, and I don't want to give it away, but basically, the show ends with the main guy, um, as Judd mentioned, uh, channeling the ancient god Pan. And that's what what got me to like tell Judd, like, you got to watch this just because of his um, research that that Judd's done on the Lubricalia Festival. So, yeah, just just if you're not familiar with it, I do recommend, but put the full armor of God on when you watch that thing. Absolutely. Watch. Yeah, definitely watch with a discerning eye yeah. uh, and, and definitely pray. Um, but, you, you know, barring that, uh, it's an interesting case study in, in subjects that should actually be of, of great interest, um, certainly missiological interest to the church, because this is the kind of stuff that's going on with regularity in the world that we live in. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point. And that's kind of, I think that's, you know, why, why we all do what we're doing is because there are some strange things happening in the world and it all points back to this one event that, that happened on Mount Hermon. And that's, you know, obviously where you guys get the name Camp Hermon. And so my question is always like, does this like things like Hellier, the Bell Witch, even Skinwalker Ranch, is this an after effect of the event that happened on Mount Hermon? Go for it, Tori. I mean, I think it makes everything make sense. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. When we think about the origins of demons, and we're talking about the demonic and anything that can kind of be related to that, it all this weird stuff in my mind points directly back to Genesis six, the first book of Enoch and what happened when the sons of God descended on Mount Hermon and, um, you know, left, left their, 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 their domain come here, have sex with women, create, you know, these offspring that terrorize the, the planet and try to destroy humanity. Um, yeah, it just, I mean, Tori hit the nail on the head. It just, it makes sense of all this strange stuff. 
And so for anybody who might not be familiar with the stories, we would encourage you to go read them. But we believe that demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, um, so the giants of antiquity, um, or maybe the giants who are still around. But anyways, after they die, we believe that their spirits roam the earth. And that's why you see stuff like this, like demonic possession, perhaps what was happening with the Bellwitch cave and in Adams, Tennessee. So I would, I would throw it back to Judd, Dr. Judd here is why. So if a demon is a disembodied spirit of a creature, the Nephilim that walked this earth, why would they need to, um, I guess, uh, synergize with a human? Why would they need to possess a human? Why, what, what are they trying? What are they trying to get after? Well, we certainly get a, we certainly get a, an impression, uh, well, more than an impression. It's, it's very explicit in the New Testament. Once Jesus begins to encounter uh, the demons, the people that he encounters them, you know, in, in conjunction with they're suffering from the depredations of these spirits. They're either being, there's certainly some, some room in the words that are used for, that are typically typically translated as as possession, a kind of seizing of that person or an indwelling of that person uh, with, with gradations bet- between those two. In a general term, demonization. Uh, and, and so very often, almost exclusively, the, the people who are demonized or are possessed are indwelled that Christ and his disciples encountered. And even even the apostles in, in later books of the New Testament. Understanding that in a, in a clarified manner can come from a look at the Second Temple period, period literature that the Jews produced, particularly the Essenes. And uh, specifically, although there are other works like the Genesis Apocryphon and the Book of Giants and a, a peppering of other documents, but um, the book of Enoch, yeah, first Enoch tells us a, a great deal about this because it contains um, the judgment that God hands down for uh, the antediluvian patriarch Enoch to deliver to the giants because of their transgressions. Um, they would be robbed of everything essentially that they had, had taken such liberty and license with consuming all of humanity's resources and then battling against humanity, then eating humanity and drinking their blood and um, finally, you know, fighting a war against one another. And so God says, well, that's it. You know, you're, you're done. Um, your, your essence is eternal, but you're, you're going to be, your bodies are going to be destroyed during the coming deluge and your spirits will wonder and seek to indwell what what they once had and they will always be placating mankind for that very reason uh and so in in enoch's you know little statement there we get a a a pretty good commentary on the nature of demons not only in the new testament but of course in in later ages because these entities are still with us so they're 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 still with us they're still very active today they may be uh, a little bit more sophisticated 
at least in America, of how they are influencing people. They might be a little bit more, I guess, uh, undercover per se, you know, because the American church uh, doesn't really, by and large, doesn't really ever, ever deal with that, with that system there. But one thing, and let me just, let me bring this back to the bell, Witch, okay. Because there's one, there's one interesting aspect of this story. And um, I liked, I'd like to have Tori and Chris um, comment on this, but wasn't there something about where now, now we're saying bell, Witch, but it really wasn't necessarily a witch. It was more of an entity, um, a demonic entity or several demonic entities. Um, it just picked up the name Bell Witch, um, which we will explain in the documentary. But this um, spirit or spirits were, weren't they like going to church and singing hymns and being able to recite? Am I right on that? They were able to recite the sermons word for word. Um, I'll let Chris start and then Tori, you could pick up on it. Yeah. I mean, some of the accounts that that we heard about were that the spirit or spirits would you, that, that parishioners in, I think it was two main local churches that were nearby um, that they could hear them singing the hymns along with them in church. That's weird. Yeah. Super weird. Yeah. Very weird. And so actually kind of, Along those same lines, but so the two churches, in my understanding, were actually like across town from one another. Like, there's no way that someone would be able to make both sermons in one Sunday morning. Um, and the witch would recite the sermons word for word that were happening simultaneously at these two separate churches. So that's pretty hard to explain. Um, yeah, but the <laughs> the witch, as she's referred to, whatever it was, um, would sing loudly. Would recite scripture and sermons in um, in the home of the Bell family um, and would even sing to, I believe that was the, the wife or the mom, Mrs. Bell. Um, she had like a soft spot for her and would sing to her. So all of it's just really, really weird. Yeah, that that is super weird that this spirit would hang out in churches. But at the same time, we do see a biblical... Um, precedence for demons, maybe not being in church, but at least influencing people. Because in it's First Timothy, uh, chapter four, verse one, and Paul writes, uh, "Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons." Um, he goes on to say, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And then he gives a list of different things that they might teach, like forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from certain foods. But this to me, it seems like the part where he says their own consciences are being seared. What this tells me is that perhaps a pastor or somebody seeking after God can maybe get a revelation that's not necessarily biblical and start teaching that within the church and their conscience being seared. They, they're not listening to Holy Spirit telling them, hey, don't teach this. This is not my word. And they're not, they're not able to discern that. And they're chasing after a secret revelation. And now they're preaching it in church. 
Um, what do you guys think about that? Let's start with Judd. I think that's entirely uh, possible. I mean, we, we think about people like uh, like Simon Magus in the in the New Testament, who you know he's 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 a a, a mage, a magician of of some note, and then he hears then he hears the message of the gospel, and he starts hearing about what all the apostles are doing. He's like, hey, I want that. So was he was he on on the right track, and then got bumped off of it again. I've often often wondered about that. Um, a good friend of mine, Dr. Greg Reed, wrote a book called The Trojan Church, where he he documents a lot of what you're talking about in the modern church, that there are these doctrines like the, um, the concept of the Sophia, uh, the, the feminine wisdom in the Godhead, um, and um, almost a, ki- a kind of quasi-gnostic uh, idea uh, about elevating the spirit above, you know, above so far above the flesh that the flesh doesn't matter, um, which of course is what what the ancient Gnostics believed in, e- e- to the point that they were ascetics and believed that a secret knowledge was. See, there's the there's the fruit again from Eden. That some sort of secret knowledge would give you salvation rather than the actual act of accepting it and believing on it and having faith in Christ. Or the uh, the other direction, they become essentially sexual libertines and indulge in you know everything that's imaginable. Um, so, uh, Doctor Reed does a really good job about. Uh, about looking at, at how a lot of those things have, have sort of crept into the church through the back door, as he puts it, because we've been so busy defending the vanguard that we weren't paying attention to the rear. Uh, and that's how a lot of this stuff uh, sort of sort of gets into church doctrines. Um, and, and particularly, I would say particularly within the last 20, 30 years, especially. Yeah, very, very good point. Um, yeah, I would definitely definitely recommend um anything it was gregory reed right that you that's mentioned right. yeah he's awesome he's really awesome Chris, what are you seeing with this? I mean, as far as like doctrines of demons and how this relates to the Bell Witch of how this demon, this witch demon thing is hanging out in a church and reciting these, like what, what, what's your take on that of how it's like affecting us today of this idea, this concept? Yeah, I, I think that one of the strategies of the enemy is this idea that these spirits, these demons, these uh, principalities and powers, the demonic realm, that they're benevolent, that they're actually good. That's one of the deceptions because if they can, if they can trick someone into thinking like, oh, these guys are, these guys are good. They're, they're benefiting my life by giving me knowledge, encouraging me. Um, And, you know, some of the best lies are built on or kind of sprinkled in some truth. 
because it makes it harder to find the lie if there's some truth in there. So you have this benevol- these benevolent spirits that are, uh, you know, preaching the sermons, reciting scripture, singing these hymns. And I think what it does is it, it brings their guard down for someone who's maybe not uh, as strong in their faith as, as someone else. Um, maybe, it, you know, someone who is a fairly new believer or they're just biblically illiterate. And so they start listening to those voices and even, you know, getting to the point of interacting with them because they, they get a benefit and that searing of the conscience comes from habitual sin, uh, particularly habitual sin that, you know, is wrong with, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, but you decide to, to do it anyway, um, almost forsaking, forsaking the Lord, forsaking the word. Um, and if it's something that you're doing, that can be traumatic. Uh, and that opens up essentially portals or doors or gateways, whatever you want to call it for the enemy to have full legal rights and access to, to influence your life, not necessarily possession, um, like full, when we think of like full on possession, but demonization, almost like harassment influence at that level. So I think it's a strategy, the enemy. And I think what we're the fruit of what we're seeing today in the church comes from decades and decades and decades of coming away from this supernatural understanding or supernatural worldview or the divine counsel worldview, if you will, of, of scripture. Cause if you strip that away and you look at it just through this naturalistic lens, there's no power, there's no authority, there's no real influence apart from kind of the supernatural aspect of it. Um, and so what that does is that starves the church of that real like authoritative power that we have, we truly have in Christ that we see in the New Testament. And then it starves the church. Churches, people are hungry for power. They're getting power from these demons, principalities and powers. It's alluring. It's tangible. It's real. It's something they can grab onto. And, you know, again, next thing you know, we see those influences in in you know churches and communities um, all over the country and in in the West. Yeah, no, very very good points because because um, <clears throat> what I see and this is why, and I'll first say this: this is why I tell especially newer Christians is that before you just get out there and start telling people, well, you could tell people about Jesus all you want, but before you start teaching, is you gotta understand how to discern between a false teaching and an actual Holy Spirit inspired teaching. And the only way, unless God gives you some supernatural discernment, which is totally possible, but is if you know the word, like if you know the word, like if you know the word and then you step into like Creflo Dollars Church like you're like, nah, dude, that's not what it says. Like you're you're saying what one verse says, but when you look at it in context of that principle that you're you're telling people, it it's not coherent. It's 
It's not coherent by any means, you know? And then, so you're able to, I guess what I would say is like, you know, you could spit out the bones, take the meat, spit out the bones, but so many people get deceived because they're listening to some dude who they trust. They trust, hey, this guy's got a church. He's on the stage. He's got a choir behind him. I trust him. But that's not, Jesus doesn't tell us to trust that dude. He tells us to trust him, trust his word and to know his word. He says, let, let, he says if my word abides in you and you abide in me, guess what? Then he's going to answer your prayers that are within the scope of his will. And if the word abides in you and Holy Spirit, and you're if the word abides in you and you're abiding in God, guess what? You're not going to pray a stupid prayer to get like a Ferrari or to win the lottery. And legit, there's, there's chicks and dudes out there that are telling people, you just got to pray for it. You just got to believe. And if you don't receive it, you just didn't believe. So just work on believing. And it creates this false, uh, this false God, in my opinion. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I had a, I had a professor in seminary who said, uh, cause you're kind of dipping into like the word of faith, prosperity gospel there who said the prosperity gospel is directly from the pit of hell because it, it so twists and distorts the word that it's nothing but uh, a, a doctrine of demons. I mean, I, I would consider the prosperity gospel, a doctrine of demons. Well, I'll say this. I'll say this. God wants to bless us. He wants us to be healed. He doesn't want us to be flat broke living on the street. Right. But he wants us to know him. And that's that's the thing behind it. And sometimes we got to go through some stuff to get to know him better. And that may not look like the prosperity gospel. Because I always tell people, and I had a I had an argument with the pastor one time. I won't get into the argument, but I told him straight out, I said, if what you're preaching is true, then Paul, the apostle Paul, missed the boat because that dude, that dude got beat up. So many times he gave his life to, to preach the gospel and he kept getting kicked in the butt and stoned and shipwrecked and all of this stuff that he went through. He missed it because he should have been confessing it. You know, he should have been confessing that stuff, you know, and that's just not the case. It's like when it's a war, when you start doing things for God, you're going to take some opposition. You know, it's not just going to be floating around on a cloud, getting things under the Christmas tree all day. That's not Christianity. Jesus tells us very plainly that if you are living for him, you're going to experience a certain amount of persecution. What, what do you think, Dr. Judd? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the, you look at the entire history of, of Christianity, um, there's, you cannot take persecution uh, out of that narrative. Um, I mean, the, j just the, the first three and a half centuries alone bear testimony to the fact that, uh, you know, that faith is, you know, that relationship with Jesus, uh, it transcends 
the, the material, the physical. Uh, but because that puts you in opposition to things like the entities that we've been discussing tonight, entities who share their master's motivations, that is to take things away from you, like, like health and life, because they want to kill you. They want to take as many potential people away from the family of God, as many image bearers as they possibly can uh, off of the board. Um, so if you're, you know, the precedent is there, uh, you know, and the best exemplar for that is Jesus himself. You know, the, the second he begins his ministry, it's, it's, it is an all out spiritual battle with physical consequences. Uh, and it's easy when you live in a country that we've been as, as blessed to live in to get that way. Uh, unfortunately, it takes a special kind of vigilance. Well, it's the vigilance and the, and the, and the grace and the thanksgiving that we're all called to have to begin with, um, which brought us those blessings in the first place. Uh, but if you look at just as in, as in the early church and in, even in late antiquity and the dark ages, the middle ages, the high middle ages, the Renaissance period, uh, any period in the history of the church, um, the, the precedent is there for, for all manner of suffering. That's not always suffering that's brought on by, by other people. Uh, it, you know, the, the mortality rate was, you know, not to use a pun, but abysmal, you know, in ages before, uh, uh the 20th century. I mean, it, 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 not to use a cliche, but it was positively medieval. You know, there was no, certainly less of a guarantee that your your even your children would survive if you had them um so and the these are the kinds of conditions that that historically the church has flourished under and i've heard any number of speakers and commentators and historians and theologians and missionaries in particular talking about how in in church in in countries where People are persecuted. The gospel is flourishing. Yeah, chi- yeah. China is a good yeah. example of that. Precisely. Yeah, um, I was just going to add to Jed. Like, even if the hardship isn't brought on by other people, um, we're basically commanded to bring it on ourselves. Like in Matthew sixteen, Jesus says, "Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me." For whoever wants to. S- for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? I feel like that's just like prosperity gospel right there. It's like undone, you know, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And that's one of my favorite chapters. Yes. Right after the, right after the, on this rock, I will build my church moment. That's right. Are arguably still in, in uh, Panaeus, if my theory holds true about the timing.
Yeah, if I can jump in just about the demons hanging out in churches, you know, I think it is so sneaky. And that's why, Mike, you've talked about this before in previous previous episodes, but that's why it's so crucial for believers to be spending time individually in the word and in prayer to not be led astray. And I think, you know, we see this, um, we, we know that they hang out in churches, you know, like also Melissa in one of our earliest episodes, her stepdad was a really evil guy and he was like a pastor or a deacon at a church or something. And, um, it's just when people just show up to church on Sundays, um, don't really put anything into it except for consuming and sitting in the pew and listening to whatever they're told. Um, yeah, someone already said this, but you're not going to pick out the lies that are mixed in with the truth, you know, but, um, but when you are in the word daily and, and someone tries to mix that stuff in, like I'm going through the Bible for the second time right now. And I, one of my college roommates texted me at like seven this morning while I was doing my makeup. And she was like, where in the Bible does it say that homosexuality is wrong because her husband found this Christian book at a thrift store or something. And it's, it's completely, I mean, just like false stuff, you know, but I'm like, dude, I'm in Leviticus right now. I can tell you like five places just in Leviticus where it says that, you know, because they try to twist it. And what this book said was by this guy from Harvard was something to the effect of Christians today and being judgmental. And so anyway, it's just, you know, if you're not in the word, if you're not in prayer, it, it just, it sounds like, oh yeah, maybe that is judgmental of us. Maybe the Bible doesn't really say that, you know? Um, but I think it's why the Christian church, especially in America, gets such a bad rap too, because I think it has been so infiltrated by evil and, you know, people, people aren't doing the work and people aren't rooting themselves firmly like in Christ. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think there's temptation all over the place. You know, you see pastors having affairs, you see, um, you know, people getting involved in like occult stuff or the prosperity gospel or just just Christians not being loving to each other. Um, and all of it is like we just need to be in the word and prayer and checking ourselves daily and never thinking that we're above like being deceived, you know, because like the Bible warns us all over too, like, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. And that means it's possible, right? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, for any Christian, whether you're, you've been a Christian all your life or just for 10 minutes, what happens in a relationship with Jesus is that the closer you get to him, the more you're going to hate the sin in your own life. And the reason being is because you'll want to get closer to him. And it's like, not saying that you can't get closer, but when you stop a sin or an iniquity where you know you're sinning and you let you let holy spirit come in and do a work inside of you then you just become closer and closer and it becomes this process that we go through until we take our last breath until we're right next to him and a lot of a lot of people out there we'll make it too complicated. And it's super, super easy at the end of the day, like forget everything, you know, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, forget everything, you know, get in the word and just pray to God, like talk to him. Like he's your dad, like he's your father, you know? And it's just something happens when you get close to that fire, which is Jesus um, and Holy spirit. And 
You know, it's the, the, the gospel is so, so simple. Um, there's a lot of stuff that surrounds it, that man, man will make it complicated, but that's going to be the answer forever for, for, for all the ages to come. If there's even going to be more ages, like even, even just being in the fringe community is sometimes we get lost in like some of the cool stuff. Like, man, do I love talking about something like the weird stuff, but at the end of the day, it's me and God. And so what I want to do is I want to ask Dr. Judd about something because um, this take, taking it back to the bell, Witch, the bell, Witch, um, and you'll find out in the documentary of exactly how this unfolded, but the bell, Witch left at a certain time after something happened and it came back and it talked with um, one of the bell family members and it told him something very interesting. And now, the, so this is probably early night, or I'm sorry, early 1820s. But this spirit told that told the Bell family member that Christianity needed to be reinvigorated in America. Now, what does that what does that correlate with, Doctor Judd, about that time frame? Well, it it coincides exactly. With the, I mean that it it basically puts it right at the doorstep at the threshold of the second great awakening in America, which was the the second big nationwide revival uh, in the country's history up to that point, and the the first one was in basically started in the 1730s and went until the almost the eve of the American revolution. It was one of the, those things that I used to tell my students was one of the main linchpins in the, the moral underpinnings of the revolution. Uh, but what you see in the, in the second great awakening is, is not that there weren't denominations before, but there is an explosion of denominations uh, during this period. Uh, if people want to look more into it, uh, they can they can read Nathan Hatch's uh, The Democratization of America, which is an excellent book that sort of covers that period and the, the um, development of, of the proliferation of denominations at the time. Uh, so uh, in, in a way, um, the American church, American Christianity, is being sort of restructured and, and reinvigorated and reinvented in a lot of ways because you've got, you've got iterations of, of Christianity that are heretical uh, that are developing at this time as well. Um, such as the, uh, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, you know, this this period also coincides with with the with the creation and the rise of uh, the Mormon Church, and so a, a careful examination of what's going on in the religious environment, the religious ecology, if you will, of America at the time, really really informs the message that this entity gives. Um, during this time about this reinvention of, of Christianity. And it, it is a, a bizarre and disturbing 
uh, inside, almost as if it was a, a, a the entity was prognosticating, but it was in a sort of mischievous, playful manner. Yeah, exactly. I find it so, you know, because I think that, you know, when God moves and does a big move like that, you know, the enemy, you know, opposes what God is is trying to do. And so that's where you do find a lot of those denominations are breaking out. And what I found as I was researching this <clears throat> is that um, with the new age movement that was um, kind of started off, well, if you start with Helena Blavatsky, um, and then you take it um, from her to Alice Bailey, you know, a lot of what Alice Bailey is talking about as far as like the denominations and stuff is that she makes it sound like it was a plan of the, of, you know, cause she, the way that she, that could be a whole documentary of what Alice Bailey went into, but she, but she, she said that if you could divide the church, then that's the way for the church to decline. Right. And so she would have written that statement. I don't know, like around the thirties or forties of, of 1900. And you look at what's happening today is that it is happening because, you know, uh, a new Christian jumps on TikTok or jumps on YouTube and whatever, whatever suits your fancy, you're going to find that within Christianity. If, if you want to be gay, if you want to do drugs and party and have, you know, whatever, whatever it is, if you want to be rich, Whatever your sin is, there is a denomination or a, or a preacher that is going to um, allow that within his doctrines. Going back to First Timothy ch chapter four, verse one, the doctrines of demons, um, uh, kind of wiggling its way into the church. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, another thing, you know, amidst the the fact that our, our Na sort of our national consciousness is changing, you know, at this time as well. Uh, the transcendentalists were also emerging during this period. You know, people are probably familiar with, with um, the likes of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. Uh, but it was a pretty widespread uh, movement that was, that definitely had pepperings of what we would call new age thought. Uh, today so there there's certainly a lot going on in the west in general at this time that points to not only this fracturing you know of the church I mean, because at this point in time we're far beyond just bifurcation uh it's 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 a force multiplier uh at this point and um the occult uh, and even even things like like spiritualism are, are also beginning to ensconce themselves, you know, in this period, kind of kind of more in towards the center of the 19th century. But it's all all of this stuff is really happening in the wake of the statement of this this entity, uh, which which is fascinating, not only demonologically, but it's fascinating in, in a sort of poly historical sort of way because you're you're dealing with several different narratives here uh in the the course of a discussion about um the uh the development of denominations in america who would have thought that you you would you could ever have that conversation 
along with a topic like the Bill Witch, but here we are. I mean, the, the pieces are right there. Exactly. Uh, it's just a, just a matter of looking at it through the lens of the Bible. Yeah, exactly. Because what I, what I see, um, you, know, you mentioned like spiritualism and Alice Bailey was great on that. And so she was, she was a student or, or she studied theosophy, which was, which Helena Blavatsky brought in. And you just look at, it's almost like the demon demons that were known as the bell witch however you want to play it it's almost like that this is this was their plan right all along to create division and i want to share something with you guys because it's it's a little bit i mean it's it's on topic but it's it's kind of changing the gear a little bit here to a different part of the conversation but um i was just researching um alice bailey and uh she had a 10 point plan to destroy the Christian church. Okay. Um, her idea just in short was to bring about a new world order with a one world religion um, with the Christ consciousness, who she calls the true God. She talks about Christ, but it's not as, as Christians know Christ. But I just want you guys to hear this and the listeners out there to hear this. This is written, you know, pretty much a hundred years ago. For, uh, step number one is to take God and prayer out of the education system. Step number two, reduce parental authority over the children. Step number three, destroy the Judeo-Christian family structure or the traditional Christian family structure. <clears throat> step four. If sex is free, then make abortion legal and make it easy. Step five, make divorce easy and legal. Free people from the concept of marriage for life. Step number six, make homosexuality an alternative lifestyle. Number seven, debase art, make it run mad. Number eight, use media to promote and change the mindsets. N number nine, Create an interfaith movement. And that's what we're seeing here with all the different denominations. They're, eventually, it's like they're going to try to merge them and say, oh, well, you're all worshiping the, the Christ consciousness anyway, so it's all good. Step number 10, get governments to make all of these laws and get the church to endorse these changes. That's 100 years ago. That Step number 10 is chilling because there's churches out there that are endorsing a lot of this stuff, you know, and, and Chris jump in. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, if, if you study American history, I'm no, I'm no historian, Dr. Judd, but we see those 10 things that you just listed and named off. You see them happening. You see them unfolding um, over the course of the last hundred or so years, whenever she, she wrote it. And when you think about those, those philosophies, those doctrine of demons, hypothetically, I think about these entities who have existed for at least thousands of years and who have had the time to study humanity and to, based on what had happened in the past, to be able to plan and predict what's going to happen in the future because they've just had so much time to study and to analyze humanity and figure out how to kind of how to destroy us, how to influence 
us influence the church. So I just think that's fascinating. And I think one thing that's interesting too, thinking about the second great awakening is that the civil war kind of comes on the heels of that time period where we had, you know, what is it? Five, 600 plus thousand people um, who were killed in the civil war. And for me, when nowadays, when I, when I look at history and I look at war and I look at how many people die, knowing what I know now about like blood sacrifice and how, how the, how influential the blood is. I see massive blood sacrifice coming on the heels of the second great awakening, almost as if two things other, obviously the, the Lord knew that that was going to happen. And so he just, he raises up all of these believers kind of before that time so that there's a remnant after left behind after all of that, just chaos and death. Um, it's kind of one, one idea there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'd be interested to, to hear your guys thoughts on, on that coming on the heels of, of the second great awakening and particularly how that may even relate to what we're seeing today in the last like few weeks with Asbury, it seems like that idea of, of revival, if it's genuine and I pray, I pray that it, that it is, um, that it's spreading. I've heard multiple accounts of, of similar things happening on campuses starting to spread across the country. Um, it makes me wonder if, if it's not something that's going to repeat itself with potential World War III looming now. You know, it, it occurs to me, Chris, as you were talking that in, um, I think it's, I think 1820 is the Missouri compromise where there was a compromise, you know, the, the Northern States and the Southern States were always teetering over the balance of free States and slave States. And certainly there's this discussion to be had about the inhumanity and immorality of slavery playing a part in all of that. But, um, it seems to me that that even that disagreement was weaponized by the enemy during the course of all this, which led up to the huge blood sacrifice that the civil war in, in many ways could be characterized as, um, and really the last, the last compromise politically, socially that that's made, um, before there are just no more compromises to be made in terms of the question of, of slave states, the balance of slave states versus slave states is the, the, um, uh, the, uh, the uh, federal fugitive slave law of 1850 that required the return, even if it was in northern states, the return of, of slaves that were owned. Almost so, so that, and Tory probably knows something about this because in, in Kansas, there are pro slavery and anti slavery factions that flock in the 1850s to Kansas, Nebraska territory. And what, what happens is because you've got the the pro-slavery and the anti-slavery factions both claiming that they've had legitimate elections and that they're the legitimate government of Kansas. 
and they end up literally fighting a war over it. It was called Bleeding Kansas. It happened in, in eight, about 1856, uh, you know, years before the Civil War starts. And so almost in, in microcosm, you've got a, a sampling of, of the bloodshed that is to come uh, in the Civil War. All this, again, happening in the wake of this period of the emergence of, of these occult, you know, occult traditions, heretical Christian traditions, uh, the, the sort of bell, bell witch prognostication. Um, and where is it all happening? It's happening, you know, in the eastern portion of the, of the country. The, the great corpus of the war itself was fought over there uh, in, in the east, primarily in the southeast, but certainly in the east. And much of it over the Mammoth Cave system. Yeah, very, very crazy. Um, just, you know, stepping back, looking at the macro picture of it all. Um, there's some there's some definite connections there. This is this is how I would like to, to end this, guys. Is I would like I would like each one of you guys to give the listener an applicable response to what you're hearing. Demons are trying to influence people, are influencing people, they're influencing government. But what do we do as a Christian, male or female, in our everyday lives? How do we shine light upon the truth and how do we shine Jesus's light? Chris? Yeah, Absolutely. I love, I love uh, ending on a practical note. What do we do with this information? Um, firstly, I would just say that if you may have heard this analogy before, um, Secret Service, they, they're responsible for making sure that uh, money is not, um, uh, uh, what's it called when you, when you make, when you print your own your own currency. Money is not counterfeited. And so I don't actually know if this is true, but I've heard this analogy so many times, but it's it's a great analogy that one way to be able to spot something that's counterfeit is not by studying counterfeit currency, but by studying the real thing. Because if you study the real thing, then when you see something that is false or counterfeit, it'll just be glaringly obvious. And so we, we've already said it here practically like get in the word, like study your Bible. There's so many resources available um, for getting in the word from, I know Tori's going through the Bible projects, like a uh, reading plan. They have a lot of amazing resources. Um, there's uh, God bless him. Dr. Michael Heiser's um, the naked Bible podcast where you could sit down and, 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 He's going to, he's going to school you on the word. Um, Dr. Judd Burton.com. He has his school that is launching very soon where you can do some deep dives in, into the word as it relates to a lot of the stuff that we're talking about now with the preternatural morphology course. Um, and then with other courses that he's going to have, there's just so many resources. So get in your word, be able to spot the, the false stuff, um, and you already said it, pray. Um, you don't have to pray eloquent prayers. Um, 
just talk to him like he's your father because he is and he loves you and he wants to he wants to hear from you it doesn't take any special prayers to be able to connect with god amen tori take it away yeah so i was just thinking you know growing up in church you hear all the time that like it's not a religion it's about a relationship and people just wear out the word relationship and it's like well, what does it mean cuz you know like you can't hear him or you can't you know um like it's hard to connect with an invisible God, you know? Um, but I'm just thinking about, again, like spending time daily in the word and praying um, and just being faithful in that and, and knowing what his word sounds like and what his voice sounds like. And, and just an analogy that came to me, I guess, is like when you're in a close relationship with somebody, whether it's a friend or someone, you know, you're dating or married to, you know, if it's a sibling, um, And you talk to them, you know, day in and day out and you know what they sound like and you know, yeah, like, you know, (laughs) what sounds like them and what doesn't. And then so if someone like takes their phone and is messing in text, it's like, you know, that's not them. You know, it's like, okay, who is this? You know, so I think it's just that in this relationship, like listening to his voice, you know, like he's a good shepherd, you know, my sheep hear my voice, you know, just like listen to his voice spend time getting to know his voice in prayer and scripture um, and do it for yourself. Don't just take it from someone else, but yeah, that's how you're going to recognize the counterfeit. Amen. Judd, you want to weigh in on that? Yes. I would just echo my co-host, you know, say that, that prayer and, and study are essential. And I, I would argue as, as deep a study as you can possibly, you, you can possibly do. Uh, is always going to be, it's always going to yield the best real-time, real-world results because we can't squawk box this. We can't keep it to ourselves. We have to take it out into the world. We have to make it, we we have to seek to understand it so that we can make it digestible to the people that we're calling to be, you know, that God is calling us to help motivate and let the Holy Spirit take over. Uh, to become image bearers of, of God, to become believers in Christ. Amen. Sorry, Mike, I just want to say one more thing. I should have led with repent. If you have, if, if you're listening to this and you, you call yourself a Christian, a believer, and, and you've got known sin in your life, find someone that you trust that's in your local church or someone that you're close with who's also a believer. Go to them confess that sin, have them pray with you and expect that God is going to heal you and that he's going to deliver you from that sin because there's nothing more that the enemy loves than when we, because of shame and because of guilt, we hide our sin. We hide our, our you know wrongdoing. He gets so much pleasure and power and control over us from that, that one of the greatest weapons that we have in spiritual warfare is to bring what we've been keeping in the dark and bring it into the light out in the open. Um, There's a lot of healing that comes and there's a lot of of deliverance, uh, closing doors that we've, we've opened to demonic influence Um, but yeah, that's just, that's one of the most powerful things that you can do. Um, confess your sins one to another and he is faithful and just to forgive. No, absolutely. Great point there. I, I, um, 
I believe that when a person is being demonically oppressed and they come, if, if they come to me and they share with me, like what they're going through, the, the first thing I'll always say is like, well, let's, let's, let's talk about what your sin is right now, because if you really want to get over it, we have to shut some doors and usually like just repentance alone, like the enemy will just boom, leave. Like he'll still bother you knock on that door, but boom, he'll, he'll leave. Right. So you, you don't need an exorcism necessarily. If, if there's something that you can control, here's the thing right now in our day and age. And um, Mike Heiser says this in all over his stuff. Okay. He talks about how that the UFO community is probably the most primed community to hear the gospel. Okay. And I full heartedly agree with that because I have been on the front lines. Um, this is how I got into more of the fringy type of stuff is that people know that there's weird stuff going on. You got like the story we went through and go watch the documentary. If you already watched it, thank you, but go watch the bell witch project. But there's so much weird stuff like the UFOs, um, even the Bigfoot topic and, and the cryptid topic, which is getting a lot of attention right now. People are primed to hear the origin story of what happened on Mount Hermon. And when you tell them that stuff, yeah, it, 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 it's not the gospel per se, but it piques their interest. And then that's, that's when... We are able to say, if I ask the question, I asked the question one time to a kid that he was talking about UFOs. I asked him, I said, well, who do you think they are? Or what do you think they are? And he said, I believe that they're interdimensional beings. Boom. He opened the door. I preached the gospel to him. I said, why do you think that they call Jesus the name above all names? Why would they say that? If Jesus is God and there's no other spiritual entities out there, why would they call him the name above all names? Why is it that you can almost scientifically prove that the name of Jesus stops most alien encounters, right? And, and stops these, these alien abductions. Why? And I asked him, why do you think that is? Right? Boom. You're planting seeds, dude. We're, we're farmers. And it just so happens to be, is this, that's the reason why I believe that God is, and you'll, I, I, I guarantee you we're going to see this, is that God is going to move in the fringe. He's going to take it from the shadows of the internet, and he's going to bring it into the forefront. And my, people like Mike Heiser, like Dr. Judd, and like so many others out there are on the forefront of doing this and bringing this supernatural worldview back in to the practical, right? Like we, Jesus in Luke 10, Luke chapter 10, Jesus didn't just say, I give you all the power over the enemy for no reason. He said that because guess what? We've got the power over them, even though we don't quite understand exactly what they're up to. 
but we are able to stop their plans in our own lives. And perhaps if God sees fit and keep put somebody in front of you and gives you that opportunity to pray for them is to pray it to pray those demons away, even if it's for a period of time that that person would be able to see clearly for that time that they're talking with you and feel and see God for who he truly is. And that's why I believe God's going to move into the fringe. So I'll leave you guys with that. If you want to add anything else in there, go for it. Mike, to your question, like what do believers do if we're confronted with this stuff? I think Jesus gives us a great model and it's not really dramatic. It's just Satan confronts him like face to face. He's lying to Jesus and tempting him. And he says, away from me for it is written. You know, it's just like, this is God's word. I know God's word. I know that's not God's word, what you're saying right there. You know, so it's just like, it's written. God says this, so go away, you know. Yeah, and what's amazing about that is Jesus is quoting from an exorcism psalm. He's quoting from Psalm Psalm 82, which was found, a copy of that was found at Qumran in a cache of the Dead Sea Scrolls, along with other exorcism rites that the Essenes had written. So cool. How cool for David to have Jesus quoting his psalms, right? <laughs> Yeah, David was like David was like tapping into like some future grace, man. Like he he knew that that like the grace thing was gonna happen because he was just like overflowing with that stuff, man. Yeah, that was Psalm fifty one was the psalm today. So in the Bible project plan that I'm doing, it's like three or four Old Testament chapters paired with a psalm every day, and they line up amazingly. But yeah, Psalm fifty one is whoo. If you're praying that repentance prayer, just go live in Psalm fifty one. Awesome. I appreciate you. Um agreeing to work on this uh this documentary this bell witch documentary guys go check it out and i also appreciate um having you come on board um with the the camp Ramon team and uh i really am looking forward to some of these future this docuseries uh that we'll we'll be announcing at some point in the future and just everything else that we're doing man uh absolutely love love having you on the team brother Awesome. Well, thank you guys for having me on and listening to my, my rants. We love it. Love it's it. next, next level. <laughs> Amen. Awesome. I should say, um, if you guys want to s- continue to support the podcast, uh, you can go to campramon.com. You can get a, a t-shirt or a hoodie. You can go to kevlarjoe.com and uh, get some some coffee, anything you buy um, on the store using our promo code Campramon10 uh, goes to help support the podcast, as well as uh, our coffee collab we have with them, the Bigfoot Blend. Um, but uh, if you don't want to do that, if you guys would just like and share and subscribe, those are some some other free ways that you guys can support the show. Um, we love you guys. We appreciate you. Um, and uh, we, just, we just look forward to to more things that we're going to be doing in the future to just growing, growing and empowering um, this community that we're all a part of. Amen. All right. Thank you guys till next time. Peace.